This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code POETRY at the checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 83. We're recording on Thursday, December 4th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and this week I'm here with Amanda Nelson while Jeff is out, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Good morning. (laughs) It is morning. (laughs) (laughs) And you were up late last night reading. I was up so late finishing um, Sharp Objects by Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl. And, you know, one of those things where you just can't stop till you find out who did it. Man, that's such a good one, too. It was so good. And disturbing. Her brain. I just don't know know about her brain. (laughs) If you live with Gillian Flynn, you sleep with one eye open, I think. You do, yes. (laughs) She's the only other author I've had this thought about. Like, her and Stephen King are two where I'm like, what is is your mind? Like, what is happening in your brain? (laughs) I'm a little scared for your family, but in like a fun way. Yeah. (laughs) It's this really enjoyable fear of what you might be thinking all the time. (laughs) You know, comforting. Yes. I think if you tallied up all the lost hours of sleep between her and like Andy Weir's The Martian just on Book Riot in the last year, we would probably be in triple digits of hours lost between all of us. Can sleep when you're dead. So says my fridge magnet. <laughs> or when you hit your mid 30s. Sure. <laughs> but that, like, the risk reward ratio of staying up until the middle of the night reading is quickly diminishing for me. Mm. Uh, so, speaking of good books that kept you awake all night, it's the uh, best of the year season on the internet and all over book media and book riot has been no exception. So we published our best books of 2014 list this year. It's big and beautiful. There are so many of us on the site and there are so many books in this list. So we'll put a link to all of, uh, to where you can find the full list in the show notes. But Amanda, what was your pick? My pick for the year was everything I never told you by Celeste Ng. Uh, which I read so many months ago, but it was it was not a case of like I read something in the beginning of the year and forgot about it. It just mm. stuck with me for forever until now. I still think about this book. Um, so it's briefly about a teenage girl who dies literally in the first sentence. There is no spoiler happening right here. Yeah. Um, she's the daughter of a Chinese father and a white mother in I think Ohio in the seventies, and uh, the book is about ostensibly what happened to Lydia, who was the girl and leading up to her death and who was responsible and all that. But really it's about race and gender and family and secrets and, and like self image. And it's just, it's about everything. It is war and peace, but like 300 pages. <laughs> so uh, it was amazing. And I highly recommend you go buy it now. 
All I will. <laughs> I'll second that emotion. I almost slept on that book. Like I just didn't get to it quickly <clears throat> enough, and I thought I was going to need some distance from all the talk about it. Not mm-hmm. because the talk wasn't warranted, but I just hadn't found the right time to pick it up. And a couple of weekends ago, primarily because you had loved it so much, I picked it up and I read the whole thing in one sitting. Um, yeah, it's so compelling. I almost did the same thing. I, I I slipped it in right before the the buzz got super big because I saw. Uh, Rachel Fershleiser from Tumblr hmm. post a picture of herself reading it in a park somewhere. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that looks that looks neat. I'll pick that up. And that was like a week before everybody started talking about it. So I got it under the wire. Awesome. My, my pick was Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Anik, oh. which um, also a book that really stayed with me. I think I read it back in like March or April, and then it came out over the summer. Uh, it's set in the Caribbean, in the Virgin Islands, in the early 20th century, right as ownership of the islands is transferring from the British to the United States. Um, and it's about two girls who lose their parents in a shipwreck and then are left to navigate life mostly on their own. They also have a half-brother that they didn't know about before. Um, There's magic and some mythology and family curses and a little magical realism. Um, It it got compared a lot to like having touches of like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and touches of Toni Morrison, but mm. it's also, you know, so uniquely its own yes. thing. Um, just a really stunning read. Um, and there, there's just so many good books on the list. Like I made a list of all my contenders and I think 25 of the books I read this year would have qualified as, you know, loved, I loved them enough to have put them on this list. But as I scrolled through the book riot list, uh, there's a lot of good overlap from contributors in stuff of like, oh, yeah, I loved that, too. But then yes. also stuff that I didn't hear about or wouldn't have seen if they hadn't called it out. So awesome variety there. And that's our end of our plug for our thing <laughs> <laughs> on the Internet. So we'll go to our first sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Um, we know because we make Internet and you probably know because you've at least thought about making Internet uh, that it used to be a really complicated process. You had to know some coding. You had to set up everything yourself. If something went wrong, troubleshooting could take all day long. Um, If you had to edit the site or, you know, it was easy to break links or to make something go wrong. I remember setting up my very first blog and being like, what if I press the wrong button and the whole thing explodes? Uh, But now we have Squarespace to make building beautiful websites easy. You won't even break a sweat. Uh, If you're new to Squarespace, you can check it out. And if you've been hearing about it for a while, which if you've listened to this show, you probably have heard about it several times. There's more now because they have just launched Squarespace. Squarespace 7. Uh, It has a redesigned user interface. It integrates with Google Apps. So if you want to connect your domain name to your email, your spreadsheets, etc., that way you don't just have to be like Rebecca Shinsky at gmail.com. You could be Rebecca at Rebecca Shinsky.com. Makes you all official like. Oh, fish. Uh, Official. Uh, They also have a partnership with Getty Images. So there's more than 40 million high quality photos for your site. And it's only $10 an image, which uh, maybe that sounds a little pricey, but I was looking at stock images lately and they can get super expensive in a hurry. Um, They have 15 new design templates. There are cover pages and you can read about all of these new features at squarespace.com slash seven. How Squarespace works is it's it's plug and play for making your own website. The design is beautiful. 
It's simple and powerful. You can drag and drop elements um, from the templates to wherever you like them. It's very easy to edit. And they have 24-7 support via live chat and email. Um, and I've used this. I have a Squarespace um, for a potential side project. And I've used the little pop-up chat for like, hey, I'm trying to do this thing. How do I do it? And there's always someone there and they do answer quickly. Squarespace starts at only $8 a month and you get a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for a year. And it's responsive design. This is the thing I think is really super exciting that your website comes built to adapt to whatever device someone is viewing it on. So if they're looking at it on an iPhone 5 or they're looking at it on an iPhone 6 Plus, which is way bigger, or on an Android phone or on an Android tablet or a desktop with a tiny screen or a desktop with a huge screen, you get the idea. It scales automatically. You don't have to do anything magical and all of your users have a positive, you know, high-quality experience. And it comes with built-in e-commerce. So if you want to sell, I don't know, T-shirts, bookmarks, bumper stickers, <laughs> recipes, uh, cross-stitch designs, yeah. you can do that. You can start your free trial with Squarespace with no credit card required and start building your website today. And if you decide to sign up because you're listening to us talk about it, use the offer code POETRY to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the Book Riot podcast. So check out Squarespace. You can start here and go anywhere. Uh, and we always ask uh, listeners to tell us if they have received, if they've uh, signed up for Squarespace or built a site from using it. And we heard this week from a listener named Chloe Doneal, uh, who sent us her Squarespace. It has really cool images, uh, little drawings and paintings that she makes. And it's a gorgeous layout of just tiled images that you can check out and see her blog and her store. It's a crisp, clean design. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can get a feel for what a Squarespace site looks like. And thanks, Chloe, for sending that to us. All right. We got a big week this week. We do. Shall uh, I jump in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me where you want to start. Okay. We're going to start with the Jackal and Woodson situation. Okay. okay. So last week, uh, as Jeff and Rebecca talked about, you guys heard um, Daniel Handler, who writes the Lemony Snicket books, was hosting the National Book Awards, and Jacqueline Woodson, who won um, the Children's Award for Brown Girl Dreaming, came up to accept her award, and when she left the stage, Daniel Handler made a joke about how she's allergic to watermelon, um, which was an obviously racist thing to say and was not the only racist thing that he said that evening. Um, and this week... Jacqueline Woodson wrote a beautiful and heartbreaking response in the New York Times that um, everyone should go read. And the link will be in the show notes. Um, don't read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, her, her response is, oh, I think the reason why I loved it so much is because she doesn't try to pretend like her feelings weren't hurt and she doesn't try to pretend like her and Daniel Handler we're not friends, mm -hmm. you know, like she keeps the, the personal, um, not angle, but the personal aspects of what's happening and how she was personally hurt by it in it. But then she's also talking about why it was so inappropriate, even though he was her friend and even though he didn't quote unquote mean anything mean by it, why that was not okay. Yeah. I think it's, I'm not surprised how wonderful this response is. And I'm reading Brown Girl Dreaming right now, and Woodson's mind is just 
fascinating mm-hmm. and the way that she phrases things is so beautiful. Um, but I thought what really stood out here is what, yeah, what you're getting at that she talks about how this came to be, like how Handler got this information about her, what the context of the conversation was in the first place, where like over the summer she told him about how she was allergic to watermelon and she reflects on uh, not just the nature of their relationship, but also the history and context of uh, watermelon jokes and racist stereotypes about black people and watermelon. Um, and she talks about the very particular kind of stabbing pain of having this joke come from a place where she really didn't expect it from someone that she felt comfortable with mm-hmm. who was her friend and um who she thought you know understood her and appreciated the challenges of her experience as a black woman but having a person that you have felt comfortable with and trusted tell a joke like this is is painful in a different way than having a stranger tell uh, a joke that is also painful, but she, I am not articulating this very well, but she (laughs) articulates articulates it really beautifully. And then she also goes into why this is, why this is problematic in this moment right now in culture. This joke would have been wrong and terrible no matter when Daniel Handler told it. But um, Woodson also talks about the movement that we're seeing in publishing right now to celebrate diversity, to bring more books to market that are by and about people of color. She talks about the We Need Diverse Books organization and the movement that's been happening around that. And also what's happening in American culture and what we're seeing on the news right now. Um, It's a very fully realized piece that's uh, that's not just about her particular experience with this horrible joke in a moment that should have been about celebrating her significant achievements, um, but about thinking about how did we get into this moment where this joke even happened and what does it say about publishing and about American culture and what can we be thinking about going forward so that this doesn't continue to happen. It's really beautiful. Um, If this is a story that you've been following, like Amanda said, definitely click the link in the show notes and go read, go read her piece. And I did want to say that uh, you don't need to read the comments, but one of a recurring comment on the piece and that I actually did hear uh, from outside of the New York Times comment section was that uh, people kind of giving her grief for calling him out in public for like calling out a friend when Mm. she maybe should have handled it privately or um, shouldn't have made a big deal of it or whatever. And I think that is so telling that, that people think that the bad thing that's happening here is not that somebody made a racist joke at a professional event. They think the bad thing that's happening here is that someone's making a white man feel bad about being racist in mm-hmm. public. Like, oh no, we're publicly talking about somebody who did a bad thing. Sure. And there was, I don't even want to mention the publication because I don't want to drive traffic to it, but a a major children's book reviewing publication ran an editorial last week um, in which they said, just point blank said, well, Jacqueline Woodson's getting more attention now because of this than she would have in the first place, which she won a national book award. That's That's enough to get you attention. That tends to get writers attention. And I am positive when I guess on Jacqueline Woodson's behalf that she would have preferred to have the attention be about the book that she wrote, not this conversation uh, that she's having to have now about a person that she thought was a friend of hers making a racist joke in a professional setting at one of the biggest book events of the year uh, in which she was supposed to be honored. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, you can take that comment somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about something happy, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to bounce back and forth. There will be lots of feelings in this episode. <laughs> I have so many feels. <laughs> we have a full agenda, and there's been great stuff in publishing in the last week or two. It's been two weeks since we did a news episode, um, and there have been some not-so-great things. But we do have a hero of the week. I think um, that actually she might be the hero of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashley Ford, who goes by I Smash Fizzle on Twitter. Um, she is a writer for BuzzFeed, and you may have recently heard her on the Reading Lives podcast that uh, that Jeff hosts interviewing people about the books that affected their lives. Um, a few weeks ago, when uh, the verdict came that there would be no indictment of Darren Wilson in Ferguson, uh, we found out that with all that was going on in the Ferguson, Missouri community, the schools were going to be closed. Many of the public organizations and sort of public services were going to be closed. Um, but the Ferguson Library, which only had one full-time employee. Just one. <laughs> is Was remaining open. Uh, they were staying open, not just so that people could continue checking out books, but because they viewed their position in the community as being a center of community support. So they're, you know, they have a Wi-Fi, they had water. They were saying very publicly, we are staying open. Our doors are open. You may come here. Um, you know, there were kids who didn't have schools to go to. There were adults whose social services were not available. They could go to the library. And they brought in uh, teachers, volunteer teachers, when, when the schools were closed yeah. to teach um, the kids. So Ashley Ford was looking for a way to make an impact. And she just casually tweeted that she was inspired to donate money to the Ferguson Library. They have a donate button on their homepage. Um, other people picked that up and started retweeting it. Um, there were big authors tweeting about it, lots of individuals just jumping in to support it. Uh, Rita Mead, one of our colleagues, wrote a piece about it for Book Riot. There was just coverage for this everywhere. The idea that something really big is happening, um, and there are a lot of ways in which we're powerless, but we can do this one thing. Yeah. And we get accused of being political on this show a lot. And actually I'm fine with that. I don't think that political is an accusation to hurl, but whatever your politics are, whatever you think about what's happened in Ferguson, a library with one employee staying open to serve their community in the midst of all of that is remarkable and should be supported. Yes. Um, and the people of the internet agreed <laughs> Yay, Internet! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks largely to what Ashley Ford bega- began and raised over $300,000 from more than 10,000 donors. That's bananas. $300,000! I wonder what their annual budget is, like, just normally. I have no idea. I'm, it's not it's, that. <laughs> no, right, yeah. With one full-time employee, it's it's not Right. They're looking at now being able to hire a full-time children's librarian. They'll be able to expand the collection of books in the library and to expand the services. And I can't recall who I saw say it on Twitter, but um, someone said, you know, I've never heard of such a thing as a library with too many resources no. <laughs> and, and too many um, community opportunities. So good job, Ashley Ford. You are our hero of the week. I found this to be so inspiring. It makes me very happy. You know, I I, I hear the word clicktivism thrown around as like a, a pejorative on the mm-hmm. internet, of especially about stuff like this. Um, but uh, it obviously works. So you can take that and put it where the sun don't shine. You know, because um, three hundred grand is not chump change for a tiny little library. 
and they're going to replace their carpets. They, mm-hmm. And in addition to the book, the money, they got a bunch of um, book donations. The the librarian mm-hmm. director, Scott, uh, I think it's Bonner. Scott Bonner. Yeah, yeah. he did an, an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, where you can obviously go on and ask them anything. And he answered a bunch of questions. And he put up a list of books that people could purchase, a wish list for the library that they could purchase and donate. It sold out. He updated the list. It sold out again. And then a bunch of big-name authors uh, came to the AMA to donate books. Uh, John Green came on to the AMA and is going to donate a bunch of signed books, uh, The Fault in Our Stars, to the mm-hmm. library. So, yay. I just have warm fuzzies. I know. It was such a positive moment for the bookish internet and seeing people really pull together that way. And uh, you mentioned the term clicktivism that gets thrown around a lot. And often when we write editorials or in in general, when anyone has an opinion about something on the internet, Mm -hmm. um, people who disagree like to comment, who cares? Yeah. Um, Well, more than 10,000 people cared about this mm-hmm. uh, to the tune of quite a lot of money. Uh, and I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see that uh, this is something that the bookish community has done right. Um, so good job, Ashley Ford. Thanks for being our hero of the week or maybe the year. <laughs> <laughs> You're awesome. I think it's close enough to call it. <laughs> We're close <laughs> enough to the end. Yeah. Jeff and I will do the like year end review show in a couple of weeks. And I've been looking back through old agendas trying to figure out, you know, what are going to be the big stories. This is undeniably one of the big stories. Yeah. Um, it's just so cool. Um, okay, so totally different topic now, because that's just how we're doing it <laughs> today. Um, as, another thing we talk about all the time is interesting partnerships between publishers and other companies and cool technology efforts. And it, HarperCollins is the publisher that seems to come up the most frequently there. They are just experimenting all over the place. Um, their latest partnership is with JetBlue. Um, and starting last week on November 26th, customers that were on JetBlue flights that are equipped with their in-flight Wi-Fi We'll be able to read excerpts from more than 20 best-selling books from HarperCollins, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are um, buy buttons included in that sampler so that customers can purchase any of the titles from a variety of retailers. Smart. So smart. You got a so, captive audience there. <laughs> you, you do. It's like you sit down on your flight and you forgot to buy a book. Or like, I think this is brilliant for... What if your flight gets delayed and you're sitting on the runway for three hours oh. and so you finish the book that you read, that you brought? Uh, you can open up your browser and read these samples from HarperCollins. Um, there's good stuff. My girlfriend, Amy Poehler, yeah, uh, girlfriend. is one of them. Yeah, And mm-hmm. if you're playing Book Riot Podcast Bingo, you can color in the Amy Poehler square now. <laughs> <laughs> there's um, Patricia Cornwell, James Frey, um, Pete the Cat. So there's some children's stuff there, too. Uh looks like good, interesting titles. We've seen lots of these little publisher airline things starting, and then I feel like I never hear about how they end up, though. you have any guesses? Oh, I have no... I. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the sound for no guesses? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sound of wheels turning with no no results. (laughs) It kind of makes me want to fly JetBlue and see how they're advertising this. Like, do you only find out about it if you happen to connect to the in-flight Wi-Fi? And and is there a pop-up or something? Or are there, I don't know, like flyers inserted into the flight magazines? Or does the flight attendant say like, oh, by the way, you can do this book thing now? I wonder. (laughs) I have questions. I have so many questions. If you are getting on a JetBlue flight anytime in the near future... 
Yeah, tell us. Let us know. I wish this were on trains. Ooh, Amtrak. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, that would Amtrak. be. You know, some publishers should just sponsor the Amtrak Quiet Car. Like oh, all, man. like all the Amtrak Quiet Cars in the country, brought to you by Harper Collins for six months. That would be so good. <laughs> or even like you know, car. Well, I was going to say cars. Mm. are coming equipped with, like, Wi-Fi now. And obviously the driver should not take advantage of such a an interesting product. But, like, the passenger could or the mm-hmm. people in the back seat. Or, like, that's an audible opportunity, I think. Yeah. Because, like, uh, yeah, a lot uh, new cars are coming with, like, Pandora automatically installed into the fancy, you know, like, touchscreen operating systems in the consoles of the car. So if you can do that, it could come with audible pre-installed. Yeah. And then you could get your audiobooks to listen to in the car. You know what I think is smart about this is that they'll say in the, in the whatever, the copy coming from HarperCollins or whatever, but most readers, I think, don't care about the publisher, so they're not even going to pay attention right. to that. They're just going to see books with interesting ex- excerpts, and they're going to read it, and then they're going to buy it. And it's not going to have, like, they're not even going to notice that this is proprietary to one publisher. Yeah, like a couple of weeks ago when we were when Jeff and I were talking about Penguin Random House, um, how we wish they would do an ebook retail or subscription thing, and we were joking about naming it Igloo. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I I just don't think the day can come soon enough when publishers will give up on trying to brand themselves. But like, come up with a cool brand for your thing. This doesn't need to be in-flight books brought to you by Harper Collins. Come up with some like books on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's terrible, but. That's terribly what awesome <laughs> see what i did there <laughs> you can come on every week amanda thank you <laughs> but then we'll miss jeff's amazing agricultural metaphors that's true i'll have to learn things about like how many cows are still in the barn and <laughs> rows to hoe and i don't know plucking a chicken <laughs> something i don't know we love you jeff yeah uh, before we move on, when I hit up our next sponsor, this episode is also brought to you by The Shape of My Heart by Anne Aguirre. Uh, this is one of the many titles that are coming out lately in the new adult type uh, genre. So it's about uh, how some people wait decades to meet their soulmate, uh, but Courtney Kaufman suspects that she met hers in high school. However, she also lost him in high school oh, uh, well, well. <laughs> at, seven, at 17. Uh, since then, Courtney's social life has been a series of meaningless encounters, uh, though she has made a few close friends along the way, especially her roommate, Max Cooper, who oozes damaged bad boy vibes from every pore. Hello. I think I know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Max knows about feeling lost because he's been on his own since he was 16, and now it's time uh, to find out if he can ever go home again, and Courtney is the only one that he trusts to go with him. Uh, But the trip to Providence could change everything. Hmm. Uh, So what starts out as simple with one misfit helping another becomes the possibility of Max doing anything to show Courtney that for every heart that's ever been broken, there's another that can make it complete. Also, big ups to Anne Aguirre. Every time that we talk about her, I get super excited because she names her titles after Backstreet Boys songs. Amazing. Best Easter egg ever. Right. <laughs> Which I think her, the target audience for new adult is people that are like 18 to 24. And the people who are 18 to 24 now might not know all those Backstreet Boys songs. So it, I think, is a really fun 
call out for slightly older readers. Hopefully like they ourselves. will discover somehow that these are Backstreet Boys songs. And then a whole new generation can discover the amazing <laughs> awesomeness that is the Backstreet Boys. I'm being so sarcastic right now. But only sort of. I have that nostalgia, you know, that nostalgic mm-hmm. love that you have for a thing that you know is objectively terrible, but also yes. so terrible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The There's a few years between you and me and... <laughs> I'm older, so my nostalgia is for new kids on the block. Like, if someone would write a series of romances called, like, The Right Stuff, (laughs) (laughs) I would read those with such a quickness. Uh, Anyway, Anna Gire, we think you are awesome. (laughs) And thanks to The Shape of My Heart for sponsoring this episode. Okay. First, I want to go to something else cool because this is just so random and great. And then we'll go back to the big story. But you found this week that William Shatner is kickstarting a book. I love this so much. Okay. William Shatner, who is 86? Is he really? Okay. Somebody please fact check me, but I'm fairly certain that that's what I read. Um, That can't be right. He doesn't look that old. I, I'm, I have to be wrong. I have to be wrong about it. Maybe he's 68. Maybe I was having a swappy moment. Anyway. He's 83. He's 83. He was born in 1931. 83! That is ridiculous. He looks like my dad. My dad is Well-preserved William Shatner. Whatever you're doing, man. Keep it up. Anyway, William Shatner has written a book and uh, has started a website called Catch Me Up that is about getting caught up with technology and using modern technology to further your goals, specifically written for people over the age of 50. Yes. And he is, it's so good. And he is kickstarting the publication so that, as an example, uh, you can watch the video on the Kickstarter page, but he talks about how he turned down the publisher's advance for this book and decided to self-publish it and use social media and Kickstarter to get it out there as a kind of model of the information that's in the book of how to use technology to reach your goals. So, it's, Oh, he's walking the walk. <laughs> he's so good. It's a, the goal is $50,000, uh, and they're at about a little under 32000 now with 46 days to go. And I have mm-hmm. backed this because I love everything that's happening right now. <laughs> I love William Shatner, and this is such a great idea. Um, and, yeah. It's so smart. He says um, on the Kickstarter, which we'll put the link to in the show notes, if you're interested in backing it or if this is a book that you think would be useful for your parents or friends who are in the 50-year-older crowd, that um, people over 50 have been beat up with downsizing and slumping economies and so many changes in the way things work. Um, and William Shatner has felt that way also. He says that until recently, he hated new technology. His phone made him feel stupid. His mm-hmm. grandkids had to teach him how to use Facebook. And he was even refusing to have an email account. And I get like, I mean, future girl loves technology, yeah. but I get that it can be overwhelming if that's uh, not something that you grew up with or have always felt comfortable with. And it would be tempting to throw your hands up and just not have anything to do with all of these pieces of modern life. But he says achieving great things in your life, you can achieve great things that you're in your life at any age. And this is about learning how to use technology in order to do those. Um, and it moves fast, but you can start to move fast too and not give up on the things you want to do with your life and maybe even discover that there are things you want to do with your life that you didn't know you wanted to do. <laughs> Until the internet, like both of our careers are things that didn't exist five or 10 years ago. Um, And I can't imagine all the opportunities that are out there that um, if you just, 
you know, stumble upon the right tool or you learn the right skill or you find that you have this, uh, a knack for something. It's so cool. It is. And he interviews people over the age of 50 who found themselves in that position who were downsized, who had lost their jobs or whatever, but then used modern technology to create a new thing or a new career for themselves. But it's not just like a book about warm, fuzzy, feel good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also about training on how to use all of these tools and what tools are best for like which problem. And it just sounds really useful and smart. And he's the perfect face for something like this. He really is. Like I've been thinking about this as a counterpoint to, have you seen the commercials for Trivago? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hope someone listening has seen these. Trivago is an online travel planning site, I guess like Travelocity and Expedia sort of in that same vein, Mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be online travel planning made less confusing. And the commercials are this guy who's probably like mid forties. And he's just looking at the camera doing what's basically a like, gosh, technology's confusing. Um, here's this easy site you can use. And there are little cutaways to older people talking about how hard it is to like find a hotel or book a flight on the internet. Mm. And it makes me so angry because the whole thing is so condescending. Like the, yeah. the way the commercials are shot is so condescending. And it's it's basically like, we know you can't use the internet. So we made a thing that should make you feel comfortable. And Shatner is doing the opposite. Like, I know that you can learn how to do this thing. And so here's how. Yes. I love that. Gold star. Gold star William Shatner. Do you think William Shatner would come on the podcast? Oh my gosh. Make it happen, Captain. Make it happen. <laughs> I just I bet we he might, would. We might have to shut it all down after that. I just don't know how you Can get you go any... higher than William Shatner? I don't think Maybe JK Rowling. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Mm. Fine. Oh, speaking of JK Rowling. Oh yeah. Okay. She has a new book. She does. Sort of. Kind of. Yes. (laughs) She's doing a a David Foster Wallace here. Or did David Foster Wallace do a J.K. Rowling Mm. in reverse? Okay, so her Harvard (laughs) commencement speech is going to uh, be a book coming out next year. It's nonfiction, obviously. And it's called Very Good Lives, The Fringe Benefits of Failure and the Importance of Imagination. So you can watch the speech um, online, but it's going to be illustrated. It's got a very nice cover her publisher, Little Brown, released the cover on Twitter a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And it just looks really fancy. And it would be, it looks like a, a lovely gift. And I'm going to buy a million copies. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's <laughs> what the speech is from 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did this with Neil Gaiman's book as well. Um, is this a thing he, now? I think it might be. Neil Gaiman gave a commencement speech a few years ago that got turned into a book, I think, last spring called Make Good Art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this seems to be about kind of similar ideas, um, failure and imagination and creativity. And Rowling certainly knows about all of those things. If you've read anything about her personal history before the Harry Potter books became the sensation that they are, um, she's had extensive experience. Yeah, it was David Foster Wallace's This Is Water speech was from the 2005 Kenyon College commencement. Um, yeah, this is a thing. You're Not yeah. Special came out last year by David McCullough Jr., which was from a Wellesley High School graduation. Oh, wow. And then uh, George Saunders gave one called Congratulations, By the Way, um, at Syracuse University. And that was bookified as well. I think this is kind of great. Yeah. Like, how many copies of Oh, the Places You'll Go does a new graduate really need? But Zero. Wait. Smart commencement <laughs> speeches from smart and interesting people who have had 
you know, challenging and fascinating lives, doing creative work in the culture. Toni Morrison gave a commencement speech also that was turned into a book, um, but longer ago than, I guess, this piece that we'll link to found to be relevant. <laughs> she, maybe, she maybe missed the moment. Yes. Oh, years. oh, man, I am on fire with the segues today. You are doing and I know so well. You're not supposed to point that out, but Jeff's not here to stop me. <laughs> Segway queen. <laughs> so Toni Morrison, new novel coming out in April. What, what? So exciting. I think maybe we talked a couple weeks ago or a month or so ago about how I had seen someone on Twitter like say that Toni Morrison had turned in a new novel, but then we couldn't get confirmation. Yeah on it. And so Random House confirmed this week uh, that on April 21st, they will publish God Help the Child. Oh, what a title. Nice little Billie Holiday call out. Ah, oh, Tony. So exciting. So, oh, the JK Rowling comes out in April as well. I don't think I mentioned that. Spring is going to be good. Yeah. Um, the synopsis for the book uh, is about a uh, a beautiful woman who goes by the name Bride and whose stunning blue-black blue, blue black skin is only one element of her beauty. Uh, she also is bold and confident. She has success in life. Um, but it caused her light-skinned mother to deny her even the simplest forms of love until she told a lie that ruined the life of an innocent woman, a lie whose reverberations refuse to diminish. This book cannot come out soon enough. Oh, my gosh. It also, I was theorizing with Jeff offline that... Uh, when Toni Morrison was on Colbert a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. he was asking her about whether she reads her books. And she said that she had just read Beloved for the first time since it was published. And that was good. And it held up. Uh, and that video is absolutely worth watching. She was so funny and graceful. Um, but that I think he asked if there was anything she would change. And she said that there was a character that she thought she could have done better by in the bluest eye, but that when she wrote it, she just didn't really like the character. And I don't know that I think this is a direct response to that, but it seems like coming back around to examining um, beauty and color and women's roles in society is a way of maybe going full circle toward the bluest eye. Oh, interesting. Who knows? Well, I'm we just, will know in April. I know. We can, or we can all read it and guess about it. Uh, <laughs> we can in, call her up and ask. Hey, Tony. <laughs> but this fascinating thing is happening with her novels where they started off small, like The Bluest Eye and Sula are pretty short. And then in the middle of her writing career, the books get longer. I think Paradise is the longest, but Beloved uh, is long and is also just so substantial. Um, but then Jazz is a little shorter and Love is a little shorter and A Mercy was short and home which came out two years ago was a pretty Tiny. big novel and i yeah. think um god help the child is listed at 192 pages in the random house catalog so she's done this interesting sort of like expanding and then contracting back to this very spare really affecting prose that's um, all she needs it really is <laughs> it's she wields her book there's like there's swords. She just wields them mm. with such like skill and precision, and she's she's a ninja. She's a word ninja. <laughs> That's right. I would like to make her. I was gonna say make her a crown, but what does a word ninja wear? I don't know. I feel like Margaret Atwood would know the answer to this question. <laughs> Margaret Atwood is also a word ninja who turned seventy five a couple weeks ago. Oh wow! And Toni Morrison, I believe, is eighty eight now. 
Speaking of people who are still just killing it in their careers. She's um, trucking. She is. How amazing. So nothing to say about this except what we are so excited. Except Bukhari will be shut down that day. Yeah, I will definitely not be working on <laughs> April 21st. Uh, we'll have to have another Toni Morrison day. I know. I was thinking we've done that once already, but why not? It's we can, fine. We're in charge. <laughs> we are in charge. We can make it our editorial agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Just shut down and read Toni Morrison for a day. One could do a whole lot worse yeah, than that. Agreed. Okay. Let's swing back around to big story of the week. And I know you have thoughts about this. So you want to take the Goodreads Choice Award winners? Oh, okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> so every year, for those of you who do not know, Goodreads, which is the biggest... Um, like reader social media site out there for cataloging books and talking to other readers. Um, every year they do a um, Goodreads Choice Awards where they nominate X amount of books in every category and then the readers vote on their favorites. And, you know, very people's mm-hmm. choice awardsy. And this year they released all of the winners. They started off with a pretty, a, a pretty diverse uh, list of nominees in every category. And it was interesting. And I was, I had no complaints about it. And then, the winners have been announced, and in every category except poetry, the winner is white. Every single person. And that's 20. 20 categories, 19 people who are white. Mm-hmm. And I have such a sad about that. Because you can't blame Goodreads. They, they presented us with a diverse cast of nominees and then the readers decided at 3.3 million readers voted Mm -hmm. Uh, you were telling me offline when we first saw this that in a lot of ways you think this is more interesting than you know the best of lists from the big publications that are just made by editors because this is a huge population of readers and it's so much more tell exactly it's so much more telling of you know we talk about diversity so much and it's not necessarily that you know, readers are purposefully being racist and not reading diversely. We read what we're sold, essentially. And this just epitomizes that problem that we, that and that cycle, that publishers Mm -hmm. hype books almost exclusively by white authors. And we buy them because it's what we see and what we think is interesting. And we love them because it's what we've read. And then we vote on them. Yeah, I think, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Well, when people, when big publications put together their their year end best ofs, it's just you know it's arbitrary. It's one or two or three people's opinions. It's or the the staff or whatever. But this is the Goodreads pool is a large slice. I mean, I think this is a good sample size mm-hmm. if we methodology cornered this stuff. It's a pretty good sample size of readers in this country and internationally. And this is what we say that we want. Yes. And that's upsetting. It is upsetting. I, you know, we talked about how, and you mentioned it just now, that the original pool of books that you could vote on was diverse. And so mm-hmm. someone at Goodreads spent time thinking about how to make those selections. And they picked all kinds of books. Mm-hmm. And many, many, many of the best of 2014 lists that are coming out from all kinds of publications and from bookstores um, with their, you know, booksellers picks are super white as well and very non-diverse. And this is problematic that when people sit down to think of their best books of the year, the pool from which they're drawing those best books 
are mostly books by white authors. And like you just said, the ones that are, we read what we know about and what we know about depends upon what's advertised to us and what publishers spend money on and not just money to advertise, you know, in magazines or on websites, but publishers spend money to put books on the front table at Barnes and Noble. Publishers offer co-op on specific titles for indie bookstores to display them or to put them in their newsletters. And publishers choose which titles they're going to spend that money on. And advertising and marketing do affect what we're aware of. And what we're aware of dictates what we can choose to read. Um, So this is, it's not bad job, good reads, and it's not bad job readers. This this isn't about 3.3 million people picked the wrong books. And many of these books are wonderful. You know, there's Landline by Rainbow Rowell, Stephen King's new book, Mr. Mercedes, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, which has been picked on basically every best of year list. The Martian. Yeah. Amy Poehler. Which both are on our list, The Martian and Yes, Mm -hmm. Please are both on our year end. Right. Diana um, Gabaldon's Written in My Own Heart's Blood, which is the new installment in the Outlander series, the new Anne Rice book. Um, But if you look at these, if you look at the covers here, oh, there's We Were Liars and then the new Rick Reardon, The Blood of Olympus. Um, for picture books, it's a uh, new Mo Willems, The Pigeon Needs a Bath. Um, most of these are t- covers that you would recognize probably because you've seen them all over the place, probably yeah. because publishers spend money on those. Yeah, definitely because publishers spend money mm-hmm. on those. And and while it's not bad job readers, I think this does come back to the source problem of publishing, not putting out diverse books that represent who all the readers in America are. Every time that we talk about this, we get responses. And I had a few tweets this week from people who were like, well, readers are just picking good stories and they're not thinking about the race of the author. That's no longer a sufficient explanation. Nope. Um, I don't think it was ever a sufficient explanation. If you care about diversity in publishing, and it's your prerogative not to. If you don't care, that's your little red wagon to pull, but you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> I'm sure they know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> if you care about having diverse books that reflect who's here in our culture and all the varieties of stories, then you do need to be paying attention to who writes these books. And you need to be putting your book buying dollars or the books you check out from your library Wherever you get books, you need to be demonstrating to those sources and to the publishers behind the sources of your books that you care about diversity. And the way that you do that is by buying books by diverse writers and by talking about it and by paying attention. Saying I don't see color and I don't think about color pretends that color doesn't matter. And it all, it just negates something that's very important to a lot of people. Like my daily experience of living as a person who is not white you cannot negate that with, by telling me, oh, well, I don't see color. Really? Because I experience it every day. And when I look in the mirror, I have to see it. The fact that you can say you don't see color is just a sign of how privileged your existence is. And maybe you should start paying attention. When, when we did the, um, the gift recommendations show last week, one of the questions was from a woman whose uh, five-year-old daughter was asking for children's books that had other children in them who were brown like she is. Mm-hmm. And the specific question that the mom sent in was, and I want children's books that have characters who are people of color, but where the story isn't just about how the person is a person of color. Right. Um, 
it's almost impossible to find those. Um, we pointed that listener to the winner to the list of the winners of the Coretta Scott King Award on the recommendation of our colleague Kelly Jensen, who knows a lot about children's literature. Um, but the stat that we quote over and over again, because it's just really mm. stunning, is that 3% of all children's books are by or about people of color. Um, I haven't seen good statistics on on that in adult publishing, but it's probably not much better. Um, it's certainly not where it should be. And that's a problem. Yeah. I did a video recently um, on our YouTube channel, which you, if you did not know, we have a YouTube channel, about uh, reading diversely and my experience of trying to read more diversely this year. And what, something I said there that, that comes up over and over again when people say, oh, I just want a good story. Like, I will say, here are X books by diverse authors. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. Here's a list. And then I will and get And if we're comment. recommending them, you can assume they have good stories. Exactly. And then but people will say, oh, I don't, why do you think that I want this? I don't read based on color. I just want a good story. So what you're saying is I'm offering you this, this list of books that I've read that I think are great that have diverse characters or were by diverse authors. And you're automatically discounting it because you think you are not going to be interested. And the only thing you know is that the books are written by people who aren't white. Think about how prejudiced that is. Like, think, just think about what you're saying when you say that. When, you're, when you encounter a list of diverse authors and you think, oh, I'm not interested in that. And the only thing that you know is that those people are brown. That's not okay. <laughs> and it's insidious. Yes. It's not, I think it's not intentional and it's insidious. And I think most readers are coming from a place of they really do just want to read good stories. Um, but it's just not that simple. And because it's not that simple... You can't just throw out the, well, why would you make this list? Or uh, we did a list of um, great feminist stories recently mm-hmm. on on the site, and someone legitimately asked for, well, where are the books about great men? Nope. Please allow me to point you to the history of American fiction. <laughs> <laughs> they are at your library and in your bookstore, and probably, I would bet, many dollars in your shelves. Mm-hmm. I bet and all my dollars, actually. <laughs> and many of them are worth reading. Like I think that's what I don't understand about these responses is when we point out these are great books by diverse authors, we're not discounting the value of the contributions of white authors. And like to look back at the Goodreads list, I loved Landline mm-hmm. by Rainbow Rowell. I loved The Martian. I loved Amy Poehler. Love. Many, many people <laughs> have loved the Anthony Doerr and love Stephen King, you know, and love Ina Garten, who won the best cookbook this year. She's the Barefoot Contessa. I am 100% here for Ina Garten. For 100%. sure. 100%. <laughs> we Were Liars by E. Lockhart was undeniably the big young adult event of the summer. Like these are good books. They're great books. These people's accomplishments are not to be discounted. We've got to get to a place in book culture where calling out great accomplishments by one group is not seen as discounting the accomplishments of another group. When we hold up a list of women writers who should get more attention or when we hold up a list of writers of color that we believe should get more attention for the work that we're doing, we're not saying None of those white writers deserve attention either. We're saying let's create some more balance and and give everyone, you know, we can make the field bigger. This is not a zero-sum game. Right. Um, we can make the field bigger and we can bring more people onto it and we can make the field look more like the world that we live in looks. Um, and I think that's 
best for everybody. Yeah. And it's really just, I think, a, a question of kind of practicing empathy. You know, if you think about, yeah, I just want to read a good story. Uh, it's easy to say that when most of the stories that have been told throughout the history of literature have been about you and mm-hmm. people who look like you. Um, but when you don't look like a character or an author, when you can't find yourself reflected in what is billed as literature of your culture, it makes you feel like you don't count in your culture. You know? And if you could take a, a minute to try and imagine what that's like, of standing in a bookstore and looking around and not seeing anybody who looks like you when you're just standing in a, a section called American fiction, like a, the only people who are allowed to talk about being American are white, you know, like that's, it's upsetting. And it, that's not how it should be. And, and I think that's why it bothers me so much is because it's just, I know, and I know people are coming from a place of like where if you, you think about, oh, if I notice race, that makes me racist. And that's not, that's not necessarily true. I mean, it can be true, but that's not what we're saying you know, by paying attention to these issues, it's, it's not a matter of, of being racist or of always seeing color in every situation, but maybe trying to imagine what life is like for people who aren't you. Well, I think it's being mindful of how color and race and our experiences that are shaped by what color we are affects every little piece of life. And when you're white, mm-hmm. it's easy to not have to think about those things. Because when I stand in a bookstore most of the authors on most of the jackets are the same color. And if I had kids, they would be white and they would grow up reading children's books with white characters. You're raising two brown kids. I am. (laughs) (laughs) They're... They, they don't have that right now. You, If you were to go buy a stack of 25 children's books that you randomly pulled off the shelves, probably 24 of them would have white characters. Most of the children's books I buy um, have animals as the main character or trains... Mm -hmm because of this because I don't want them to look at books that that they know were theirs because they have their own little bookshelf where I keep all their stuff and I don't want them to go up to their own little bookshelf and not be able to see human beings who in any way look like them so I just give them you know Thomas the train because mm-hmm. <laughs> what else am I and, supposed to do <laughs> sure that's Man, that's stunning. And that's a problem. <laughs> this book about trains has more to do with your life than a book about a human because all the books about humans are white people. Yeah. That's a lot. There, there that is. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really articulated that before, but that's definitely, yeah. That's and that's why we keep talking about this. And that's why we'll continue to talk about it. And that's why we'll talk about it at length mm-hmm. um, because it's a thing that deserves and needs to be talked about at length until things start to change. And they have to, if we want kids especially to become readers. And I think it's interesting that the word political gets thrown around about this. Roxane Gay wrote really beautifully this week in The Guardian about political as an accusation when um, all of our lives are affected by politics every single day. um, And trying to act like political is a negative or or, or just a bad thing on its face denies the fact that our lives are affected by political decisions every day. But reading and writing have always been subversive. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and reading is an inherently political act. And you're you're putting yourself into someone else's experience um, with fiction for three or four hundred pages. That's a huge opportunity for empathy and to learn about 
the world. And every decision that we make, especially about how we spend our money and the art that we consume, mm -hmm. the shows that we watch on television, these are all indications to the people who make media and who decide which books come out and which TV shows and which movies and all of those things. These are all indications of what we want. What we buy and what we consume is an indication of what we want. And so if what we really want is for things to be different and for the media that we have to to reflect not just white people American culture, but the fullness of American culture, then we need to start voting for different things with our dollars. Yeah. And the idea that reading isn't at all political is, is something that confuses me so much because, you know, it's even if you look at just the classic Western canon, like the entirety of Dickens is about him fighting poverty and horrible legislation in Victorian England. That's all he wrote about for his entire life was politics. Mm -hmm. Sure, the Scarlet Letter is a slash against Puritan sexual ideals. Yeah, all of Jane Austen <laughs> is, I mean, you can read Jane Austen as just a romance novel if you want, but it's, I think there are obvious feminist statements in Jane Austen about the role of women. And it's, I mean, everything that we read that we, that we put on literary altars and turn into millions and millions of BBC miniseries are all political and were written with that intention. So pretending now that we're in an even more politically divisive time, I think that, that suddenly reading has nothing to do with politics is just foolish, I think. In my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have a few more little potpourri stories for the week, but first we want to do our last sponsor of the show. This episode is brought again by Random House Audiobooks. Uh, if you need more motivation for your next workout, if you are finally finishing up a craft project like the giant scarves that Amanda <laughs> has been knitting lately, um, if you want to add some excitement to your daily commute or your family road trip or your drive to the gym and the grocery store like me, uh, if you're looking for a story to keep you company while you cook, um, I I particularly have discovered that I like memoirs a lot in my ears while I'm standing in the kitchen for hours because cooking is a thing I love to do and having entertainment while I cook is awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, then audiobooks are probably for you. Uh, Jeff likes to point out that if your family wants to watch sports and you don't really care about commentary, you could listen to audiobooks while the game is on. This is a good time of year for that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to be traveling at the holidays, airports are crazy making and you could put a story in your ears to keep you company but also so that you don't have to talk to the person sitting next to you ding 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 <laughs> uh random house audiobooks has a great website at tryaudiobooks.com where you can get suggestions for what to listen to while you cook while you garden while you travel um they have you know bestsellers but also some uh, just other stuff from their backlist because they're Random House, so they have a huge catalog of audiobooks um, that you can just search by activity there. You can look at their list of recommendations and at tryaudiobooks.com. There's also a tool where you can put in how long of an audiobook you're looking for and what genre you're in the mood for, and it spits out some choices. Um, so go to tryaudiobooks.com. Start listening today. Get your recommendations. And this is not part of the official sponsor spot, but this week they added an, an app for Random House Audiobooks called Volumes um, that, that does most of these things, but in your phone instead of 
on the desktop. So you can also maybe check out the volumes app and generate some suggestions. You can search by, you know, subject, author, title, you can see bestsellers, all that good stuff. And then that those link you directly to purchase from iTunes, but a great source of recommendation. So we love audiobooks around here at Book Riot. Um, You and Jeff and I love them. And so many of our contributors listen to audiobooks. Um, We've heard great, hilarious stories from Book Riot listeners about (laughs) all the situations in which they've listened to audiobooks and like funny things that happened to them while they were doing that. Uh, So lots of support there. And there have been tons of stories in the last year or two about the growth of audiobooks as a format again now that portable technology has been has become so functional and great. So try audiobooks.com. Let them know we sent you. And thanks again to Random House Audiobooks for sponsoring the show. Okay, we can probably do one thing before we do new books. Oh, let's do the Patterson. You want to do the Patterson? Uh-huh. Oh, girl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Tell me all about it. Okay, so James Patterson of James Patterson fame, he needs no introduction, <laughs> has put out a video on the YouTubes that is about book burning, <laughs> but I don't know to what purpose. Okay, so James <laughs> We'll Patterson, put a link in the show notes. Yes. Please go watch this. So it is literally a video of people burning books. And James Patterson's voice, doing a voiceover of, um, I've, like, It's like, in a world. Yeah, where publishers are going out of business, dun, 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 (laughs) sort of a thing. Um, And then at the end, it's just a flaming pile of books that spells out the words, enough, visit jamespatterson.com to find out what you can do. And so, of course, I visited jamespatterson.com to find out what I could do. And it's like, sign a petition to get Obama to carry books around in public. That's real. Uh, and, like, write your local representatives about reading. Which, okay, sure. But but you made a video about book burning about this? Well, and it's like... So there, I found this video through a news story, and then I wasn't able to f- go back to the news story. But it was, <laughs> like, Patterson's concern is they're closing your libraries. Yeah. Which... Yes, they are closing your libraries. Elected officials and governments are closing Mm -hmm. your libraries. But then it's also like, and they're killing your bookstores. Like, actually, no, you're killing your bookstores. Mm -hmm. If if you want bookstores in your community and you're not buying books from the bookstores in your community, or we're not, like, if I don't buy books from the bookstores in my community, then I'm killing my bookstores. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very, (laughs) like, they're not publishing or something i don't i publishers are dying that's what it was yeah and that's it it's like i think that james patterson's heart is in the right place um he does read kiddo read which is a pretty cool program that puts books in children's hands and makes recommendations to them he's put his money where his mouth is he's Mm -hmm. donated a lot of money to um to grants that he created for indie bookstores that are doing cool initiatives i think he cares about the future of books and reading but this feels like misplaced concern um (laughs) like and it also feels very double speaky yeah, it's very like this video was made in 1984 in all the senses. Yeah. It's <laughs> like having uh, – and the president was in a bookstore last week. He was in politics and prose in Washington, D.C. on the what, the day after th- – on Small Business, Small Business Saturday. Saturday yeah. um, buying books, and that's a thing that Obama has done for the last several years. Um, president Bush was seen 
reading in public. There were pieces about how uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney had competitions about who could, or was it, it was Bush and Karl Rove, I'm sorry, had competitions each year about who could read more books mm-hmm. in the years. Like our president's talking about the importance of books and reading culture is not a new thing and it's not a partisan thing. Um, but I just don't know that this is the right way to solve the problem. Like, yes, it's a problem that libraries have lower budgets. Yes, publishing is shrinking in some ways. And I'm not actually sure that that's a problem. I think it's just a sign of change. But is having President Obama appear once a month in public holding a book really going to be the solution? Like, this is the thing you want to fight for right now? I don't know. I, why aren't we, why is this not a campaign for library funding? Yeah. Period. And maybe not with a video of book burning for libraries. Cause that's weird. And it's so, it's just so over the top. Like <laughs> it's Patterson may have a valid point here. And I think some of his points are valid, but it's hard to make them in a video when it's giant flames engorging books like and it's kids like kids not engorging books engulfing on. engulfing flames that are <laughs> flames, flames so on the side of my face <laughs> show title <laughs> <laughs> it's i just don't understand <laughs> i don't know it reminds me of like the do you know where your kids are kind of infomercial right did we steal your books and throw them into this flame mm-hmm. but on the other hand and- i went to jamespatterson.com so <laughs> It got me there. Did you do? Did you feel compelled to do any of the things he suggested? I did none of the though, things. Like, I, the piece I read, the whole thought was like, if enough people sign this petition, then the Obama administration will have to address it. It's what, like 100,000 signatures mm-hmm. or something? Um, that if enough people sign any petition, the administration has to address it in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is like, this is how we want to spend our president's administrative time is addressing petitions about will you carry books around in public yeah that's weird i think the library funding thing is a great idea or even a video another video about his like indie bookstore grant stuff would be cool but like this weird get obama to carry a book around thing is like all that's going to result in is a bunch of pundits doing think pieces about obama's reading habits (laughs) that's that's what that would Mm -hmm. make happen and so if you want to see a weird video that james patterson made about burning books and I think it's a metaphor how (laughs) culture is burning books question mark I'm trying to make this make sense (laughs) it's weird it is weird it's weird I just don't even know what to say about it explain yourself to me James explain it I I feel this way about most new James Patterson initiatives and like to his credit there are a lot of them Mm -hmm. he's doing a lot of things but I always kind of feel like Oh, you just sort of missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> like there was that time he imagined himself as Jeff Bezos. Oh. And remember that? Yes. And wrote like wrote the letter that he thought Jeff Bezos should write during it was during the Amazon Hachette dispute and James Patterson is published by Hachette, so pony in that race. Uh so just what? I really thought that's what this video was gonna be about, was like Amazon mm. is burning down literary culture or something which that would make more sense yeah honestly from where patterson is coming from but this yeah it's strange listeners please watch it and tell us what you make of it (laughs) i just need some more input explain it to us (laughs) yeah so let's talk about new books we're in we're in december this is a relatively dead time of the year for new books publishers do like all the big things and 
uh, either early in the year or like October, November. Um, the first few weeks of January are looking awesome for 2015. But there are still some things that are happening. And there was a new Murakami book this week. Yeah. That has been, for some reason, kind of quiet. But it's called The Strange Library. Um, it's about a lonely boy, a mysterious girl, and a tormented sheep man, what? because Murakami, yeah. <laughs> that are plotting their escape from a nightmarish library. That sounds awesome. It does. I've seen a few people have read it because uh, it came out two days ago and I saw it uh, on Twitter and people were, were, they had thoughts. It's strange. Strange library indeed is I think what the tweet said that I just uh, saw. So. Which, it's weird that new Murakami Day was not a thing that people made more noise about. Yeah. Um, but there's a new Murakami. It looks like it would be a great book for book lovers. Also, since there wasn't a big publicity push, the people in your life who love Murakami might not know that it's out yet. Okay. Um, but books for book lovers, always great holiday gifts. I'm intrigued. Murakami has not worked for me a lot in the past, but this, I think, might be what I'm going to try. A um, couple notable paperback releases this week if you're looking uh, for something to read while you're traveling or again for the holidays. On Such a Full Sea by Chang Rei Lee uh, is out in paperback this week. Uh, it's a sort of dystopian story um, about lo a long declining American society that's stratified by class. There are these long abandoned urban neighborhoods that have been repurposed as self contained labor colonies. And the members of the labor class who are descendants of those brought over years earlier from an environmentally ruined China uh, find purpose and identity in their work to provide pristine produce and fish to the small elite satellite charter villages that ring the labor settlement. Wow. So big dystopian look at you know, society and labor and class divides. Um, I haven't read this. It seems maybe a little bit similar to the the world uh, that Atwood sets up in the Oryx and Crake stories um, with these, you know, you live in different places according to what your job is and that, of course, the lower colonies are supporting the higher ones. Also not totally an unfamiliar setup to like the districts in the Hunger Games. Um, I'm really intrigued. I've had this one forever. I think I'm finally going to read it uh, over the holidays. I'm going to be catching up on stuff. And then the last new book um, out in paperback this week is Havisham by Ronald Frame. Of course, Miss Havisham is one of the notable and uh, memorable characters from Great Expectations. And Havisham is an, a new novel inspired by Great Expectations that is an imagining of Miss Havisham's life before she became Miss Havisham. I want that. This I can't believe you haven't read this already. I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> like it's uh about Catherine Havisham and um yeah, what happens before she got left at the altar. <laughs> and the reviews of this were great. Um I think uh several Book Riot people read it when it first came out. I've seen a lot of people talking about it. The paperback has a great cover um that's the, you know an old antique looking wedding dress. They Man. built my they built my wheelhouse right around <laughs> this right around this book. <laughs> this is Amanda just all the way around. The subtitle is a novel for Amanda Nelson. That's what <laughs> It was a Kirkus best book of 2013. Uh, so, right, I guess it did come out about this time last year in hardcover. And so they've done a longer hardcover to paperback arc. But 
It's hard to imagine many readers who wouldn't be into this for some reason. Uh, and the the new imaginings of classic characters has been a fun thing to see come out in the next few years. Um, I think Jeff and I are both still holding out for a novel from Daisy's perspective inspired by Gatsby, but I don't think, well, Gatsby's not in the public domain yet, so that probably can't happen legally. Um, but I would like it if it did. <laughs> Get on that. <laughs> Dear publishing, <laughs> I have requests. <laughs> Uh, those are our new books of the week. Thanks again to our sponsors, Squarespace and Random House Audiobooks and The Shape of My Heart by Anna Gire, who is awesome and likes the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's a full lid, Amanda. So full. This is our show. You can find Book Riot all over the internet, bookriot.com. Show notes will be at bookriot.com slash podcast. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and Pinterest. And now we have a store where you can buy Book Riot hoodies uh, and t-shirts and a box of some of our favorite books of the year and other bookish items and all kinds of other stuff. That's at store.bookriot.com. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. I'm on the Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can find Amanda at I'm Amanda Nelson, spelled exactly like it sounds. What else? If you want to rate or review the show on iTunes, we appreciate that and it helps other people to find it. Read on. Read on, readers. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week.